Well, good morning, New Life. It's so great to be with you again. Uh, it's not, it's a substitute. It's a poor substitute for being in person. And we really look forward, Elaine and I really look forward to when we can see you all again. But at least we have this means of communicating, even if it's only me communicating with you. Uh, it's always a privilege to do that. And uh, I want to talk to you this morning uh, from a very familiar passage in relation to spiritual warfare, Ephesians chapter 6 and verses 10 to 17. And uh, the passage itself, uh, you know it probably, um, begins with these words, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And then it continues to say, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities and the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Uh, we wrestle against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And then Paul goes on to exhort them to take up the whole armor of God that they, you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. And then he goes on in the rest of the passage to describe the various pieces of spiritual armor that he's advising us to put on. And what I want to talk to you this morning is not so much uh, to go over all those pieces of armor and what they represent, although I'll allude to it. But the most important thing uh, to notice when we come to this passage is actually the context. And someone said once, a verse without a context is a pretext. And the same thing is true for a passage. We actually can take a whole passage out of context. And if we don't see it in context, we won't understand it properly. And I think this has happened, actually, in our understanding of this particular passage. And it is a passage on, passage on spiritual warfare. So it's really important that, that we understand it correctly. Now, so therefore, what I'm going to start with is this thought that the most important thing to note in studying these verses is the relationship that this little paragraph has uh, to the rest of the letter that it's part of. Now, Ephesians as a whole is divided into two halves, quite neatly. The first three chapters, they deal with doctrine, what God has done for us in Christ, how he rescued us when we were dead in transgressions and sin, how he broke down the division between Jew and Gentile, and how he joined them together in one body, how the ageless mystery of the plan of God has been revealed in the gospel. That's the first three chapters. That's the quickest exposition of Ephesians 1 to 3 that you'll ever hear. Uh, but then, uh, beginning at chapter 4, verse 1, and it's signaled by the word, therefore, Paul begins to draw out the practical consequences for our lives, our day-to-day -day lives, of what God has done, as described in those first three chapters. So the therefore, at the beginning of chapter four, uh, is like a, a hinge. It, it binds the two halves of the letters of the letter together in unity, and it, it's a hinge on which... It turns from what God has done for us to how this is applicable in our lives. And so 
In other words, it's because of what God has done, as described in chapters one to three, that now we're commanded to live differently than we did before. And so in chapters four and five, uh, he spells out the importance of a number of different things, including living together in unity, turning away from our old lifestyle of pleasure and moral impurity, separating ourselves from darkness uh, in all of its forms, replacing drunkenness with wine with joy in the Holy Spirit. And then from the end of chapter 5 through to chapter 6, verse 9, he continues the application, uh, but the practical application of what God has done for us in Christ by showing how that is to be lived out in family and work relationships. So from the beginning of chapter 4, right up to the middle of chapter 6, uh, we have a series of commands. There are actually 31 in in total, um, and they give a comprehensive description of how we're to live as a Christian. So on the basis of the work of God in Christ for us in the first three chapters, in chapters four and five in the first half of chapter six, we have a whole list of applications of that that come to us in the form of commands concerning the Christian life. So then we come to chapter 6, verse 10, which I read, and it begins with this word, finally. Now, when somebody says finally, like perhaps when my wife is a little bit annoyed with me uh, over something and she lists her complaints and then says, and finally, and I know that, you know, the coup de grace is about to be administered, um, uh, so when he says, or when someone says the word finally, then we know that what that person is about to say, it relates back to everything that precedes it. And maybe it's the, uh, it, maybe it's something very important that's going to be drawn out uh, on the basis of everything that's preceded it. So therefore, uh, this word finally uh, encapsulates all these commands of chapters four, five, and the first half of chapter six. And we misunderstand, I think, this passage because we miss this. We think that Paul is just making an isolated statement about spiritual warfare. And that's how it's taken. We preach on this text. We quote this text. We refer to this text as a kind of a little manual on spiritual warfare. But we fail entirely to see the context to it. And so we interpret it as a call to some kind of special intercession in which we wrestle with demonic principalities and powers. And that's actually resulted in some very strange ideas about spiritual warfare, uh, warfare over cities or over issues in our own life. And we try to isolate what particular demon happens to be ruling over the street or neighborhood in which we live. And then how do we deal with that? We uh, go rebuking uh, the devil, rebuking the various spirits. We pray and fast and we call them down and then nothing happens. Uh, well, am I saying there's no role for prayer and spiritual warfare? No, that's not what I'm, that's not what I'm saying. I, what I'm saying is in order to fight the battle, we have to find the battleground. What is the battleground? Now, that's what I'm going to try to explain. The truth is that many Christians are fighting in the wrong battleground. Um, and in the meantime, the enemy is having a heyday on the battleground that we're missing. So we need to understand 
uh, what this warfare is and where it's fought. And so the last half of Ephesians tells us if we have ears to hear, uh, then uh, God will show us that. And this word finally is the key. So let's just take a closer look. Again, finally has to be understood as the conclusion to what has gone before. And what is it that's gone before? What has gone before is this long practical application starting at the beginning of chapter four of all that God has done for us. And so the battleground of the warfare in chapter six, verses 10 to 17 is found in precisely what he's talking about in the previous two and a half chapters. So, uh, 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 finally then, uh, uh, introduces a list of five Greek commands in verses 10 to 17. And, uh, they're supported by four participles. I know you didn't ask for a lesson in Greek grammar, but those participles have the force of commands. So what I'm saying is that even in these verses 10 to 17, we basically have nine different commands that are addressed to us. Be strong in the Lord, put on the whole armor of God, take up the armor of God, stand therefore, fasten on the belt of truth, put on the breastplate of righteousness, put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, take up the shield of faith, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So those commands talk about truth, righteousness, faith, prayer, and the word of God. So it isn't just going out into your neighborhood and having a little prayer walk and rebuking some demon. Uh, Spiritual warfare involves walking in a lifestyle of truth and righteousness and faith and prayer and the word of God. So it's our lifestyle, uh, not just an isolated intercessory command to a demon to be dislodged it's actually our lifestyle that gives us authority to stand and prevail in spiritual warfare and my uh suggestion to you is that these nine commands of spiritual warfare that are given in verses 10 to 17 these commands actually are meant to show us how to fulfill the previous 31 commands that he's given in the in the two and a half chapters. And they show us how to do that in three different ways. First of all, they show us what true spiritual warfare really is. So now I'm talking about the nine commands of spiritual warfare, starting with be strong in the Lord, put on the armor of God, uh, stand, fasten on the belt of truth, and so on. These commands show us the meaning of the previous section. The key is making that connection back. The previous two and a half chapters is about putting off the old self and putting on the new self and about how we apply the work of Christ to every practical area of our life, including how we live in within our employment, how we live in our marriage, how we live in our family and how we live in our morality and so on. So when we put on the armor of God in chapter six, verse 10 is exactly the same thing. As what Paul says back in chapter four, where we're to put on the new self, putting on the armor of God in spiritual warfare reveals the warfare dynamic, which commences the minute we put off the old life and put on the new life. As soon as you come to Christ and put on the new life in Christ, put on the new self, you are cast onto the battleground of spiritual warfare because the enemy doesn't like 
what Jesus is doing in your life, and he will challenge you. So the spiritual, so true spiritual warfare is undertaken not just in a prayer meeting where we rebuke demons. It's undertaken in the nitty gritty of life as we walk in truth and righteousness and faith and prayer and the word of God. True spiritual warfare. And let me go through now these pre, the content of the previous two and a half chapters very, very briefly. True spiritual warfare occurs when we attempt to walk with each other in humility, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Chapter four, verses one to nine. That's where warfare breaks out because Satan doesn't like it when we start to do that. Truth spiritual warfare occurs when we submit to fivefold ministry gifts, apostle, prophet, pastor, evangelist, and teacher, so that we're no longer blown about by every wind of doctrine, but grow up into maturity. That's chapter four, verses 10 to 16. So the devil doesn't like it when spiritual gifts and ministries appear in the body of Christ, and we, when we begin to learn from them and go with the flow of where they're leading us. S Satan doesn't like that, and warfare will break out against it. He will even as we, he'll try to disrupt unity, he'll try to disrupt our uh, faithfulness to leadership and isolate us. True spiritual warfare occurs, now chapter 4, verses 17 to 24, when we seek to turn away from moral impurity. The devil doesn't like that. Warfare breaks out when we try to do that. True spiritual warfare, chapter 4, verses 25 to 32, occurs when we turn away from anger, bitterness, lying, and laziness, and instead walking kindness toward one another. Satan doesn't like that. He will challenge that. True spiritual warfare occurs when we reject all forms of idolatry and deception, chapter 5, verses 1 to 14. And Satan will try to drag us back into idolatry and deception. True spiritual warfare occurs when we stop being drunk with alcohol and start being filled with the Spirit living in an attitude of praise and worship toward God, chapter 5, verses 15 to 21. True spiritual warfare occurs when wives respect their husbands and husbands lay down their lives for their wives as Christ did for the church, chapter 5, verses 22 to 33. And there's lots of warfare that will break out in marriages because Satan doesn't like it when God's order comes into that relationship. True spiritual warfare occurs even when children obey their parents and when parents sacrifice for their children, chapter six, verses one to four. And finally, true spiritual warfare occurs even where employees honor their employers and where employers treat their employees properly and justly, chapter six, verses five to nine. What am I saying? That these two and a half chapters, four or five and the first half of six, indicate that true spiritual warfare takes place on the battlefield of everyday life. There is nothing that Satan will oppose more ferociously than people who determine to live a godly life. Because when that happens, when believers are in unity, when moral purity is the norm, when gossip and backbiting have stopped in the body of Christ, when families are in order, when Christians are both the best employees and the best employers, that's when the kingdom of God begins to move forward in power. And that's where the battle takes place. I mean, you can hoot and holler and go to the high places of your city and rebuke all the demons you want. But if your life 
and your church are not in order, the devil will go away untouched and laughing at you. But if your life and your church are in order, he will turn and flee and the battle will be won. Now, am I saying that we don't have to wrestle with principalities and powers? No, I'm not saying that. The wrestling comes in many ways. It occurs primarily as we fight on a daily basis for the establishment of the kingdom of God in our own lives, in our families, in our marriages, in our relationships, in our churches, in our employment. Um, And uh, that's where we wrestle. And all of that includes lots of prayers, prayers for healing, prayers for provision, prayers for protection. Uh, We pray, we plead the blood of Jesus, we cry out to God for help. Uh, Are there principalities and powers uh, over cities and nations? Yes, there are. Uh, The Bible isn't big on that, but it does give us some definite indication, for instance, in the book of Daniel. And likewise, the Bible tells us there are angelic powers that are assigned to help every local church, including New Life Toronto. Isn't that encouraging? And there might even be an angelic power assigned to help you because the early believers in, I think, the 12th chapter of Acts evidently believed that when Peter got released from prison and knocked at the door, they thought it was his angel, not him. So it's a mysterious world. The Bible doesn't say enormous amount about it, but it is real there. And there are demonic principalities and powers that need to be opposed. The question is how to oppose them. How are they going to be brought down? And I tell you one thing for sure. They're not going to be brought down by a compromised church, which is full of sin and disobedience and dysfunction and has not walked through the 31 commands of Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. See, it takes government to fight government. The church has to find a solid place. And we as Christians have to find a solid place in the purposes and the will of God and form a strong spiritual government with the grace of God and the power of the spirit behind us. And then uh, the promise that Jesus gave to Peter will come true. The gates of hell will not stand against us. So where are our prayers directed in spiritual warfare? Well, first of all, they're to be directed toward the establishment of God's order in our own life, in our moral purity, in our daily conduct toward the people around us, in our family life, in our workplace. That's the first places that our prayers are to be directed. So the enemy isn't threatened if we pray down strongholds over a city at the same time as our personal family work and church are in disarray. But when we seek the establishment of the kingdom of God, in our day-to-day lives, the powers of hell will surely begin to shake. And then we can move on to contest every inch of ground that we're seeking to take back from him. So the battle takes place over your relationship with your spouse, your relationship with your kids. It takes place over what you're doing in your place of employment and how you're getting along there. It takes place over your college or your school. It takes place over how you're getting along with your neighbors, over your relationship with other Christians. That's where spiritual warfare is fought, and that's where spiritual warfare is won or lost. And when whole churches and families of churches even begin to win these battles, then whole communities and cities will be won for Christ. 
So the the structure of Ephesians 4 to 6 and the commands that are given to us in verses 6 to 17 in terms of spiritual warfare, they show us where the battleground is. If we take the whole thing uh, uh, in context, they show us where the battle is to be fought. And not only do they show us where the battle is to be fought, but they show us how to fight the battle. So now I'm back in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. The very first command, be strong in the Lord, actually, interestingly, in the Greek is in the passive. What that means is the meaning is be strengthened in the Lord. And there's a big difference between going around and telling people to be strong and going around and saying, be strengthened. It's the difference is screw up your own willpower and whatever, or uh, find grace and strength in God. Now, our strength runs out pretty quick. God's strength never runs out. That's why Paul says his weakness is always made perfect. Uh, I'm sorry, our weakness is always made perfect in his strength. When we know we're weak, that we find his strength. So it's be strengthened in the Lord. If all we have is our own strength to fulfill those 31 commands of chapter 4, 5, and the first half of 6, man, we're, we're in a tough place. But that is not the case. We are to not to be strong. We are to be made strong. What a difference. Well, the strength doesn't come from me, but from the Lord. And uh, that draws us back to the first three chapters of Ephesians 3, where the whole basis for any command uh, that God could give to us of any sort at all is the work of Christ. It's only because of what Jesus has done that you and I can do anything. It's only when we draw on what he's done that we can fulfill his will. That's the meaning of grace. And grace is not something that you can generate yourself. It's something given. That's what the word means. It's a free gift. It's something that All we have to do is say, yes, Lord, I want it. You have to receive it. That's your only part in it. Grace is not just a theological concept. It is a theological concept, but it's way, way more than that. Grace is power. Grace is the divine energy, the energy of God, which strengthens and enables you and me to step into the battle and fulfill any commands that God has set before us. To try to obey the commands of God without the power of God leads to legalism and failure. To seek the power of God without the desire to obey God's commands leads to a spiritual train wreck. I'll repeat that. It's two mistakes we can make. To obey God's commands or try to obey God's commands without God's power leads to legalism and failure. But to seek God's power without the desire to obey God's commands is a spiritual train wreck. But to seek God's power in order to obey God's commands, to seek God's power in order to obey God's commands leads to maturity and victory in the only spiritual warfare that matters. So, these verses, Ephesians 6, 10 to 17, and the nine commands in them, they show us where the battleground is in all the facets of your life and mine. 
Secondly, they show us how to fight it, which is basically reduced to be strengthened, don't be strong. And finally, encouragingly, they show us that God goes before us. If, if we think that Paul dreamed up this picture in verses 10 to 17 of the Christian in spiritual armor, if we think he dreamed it up out of nothing, we're badly mistaken. Most of it, actually, Paul borrowed from Isaiah. And Isaiah painted a picture of God as a warrior. Uh, and he did so in a number of different places in, uh, in the book of Isaiah. For instance, um, Isaiah 42 says, the Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He turns up his zeal. And think about these passages here. In Isaiah chapter 11, it says, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. There's the belt of righteousness. Faithfulness, uh, or in, in Hebrew, it's truth, is the belt of his loins. There's belt of truth. Um, uh, sorry, the breastplate of righteousness and the belt of truth. There's there's where he got those from. And then in fifth, chapter 52, Isaiah says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news and publishes peace. And there's the, the, there's the, 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 the shoes of the gospel that he talks about in Ephesians 6. And in Isaiah 59, the Lord saw and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. And then his own arm brought him salvation. His righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate, breastplate of righteousness. The helmet of salvation on his head. There's the helmet of salvation. And garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. So I think you can get the idea from reading these passages that Isaiah is drawing a picture of God going forth, dressed as a warrior in these very weapons and items of armor that Paul is alluding to here in Ephesians 6. And Isaiah is saying, they're God's uh, weaponry. They're, that's God's armor. And that's how God goes out to battle. And so the full armor of God, which we're commanded to put on, is the armor that God himself is wearing. And obviously the armor that Jesus, the Messiah, has worn. So then all we're required to do is to put on God's own armor, which he's provided for us. In other words, it's not our armor. It's God's armor. It's not the armor of Saul. It's the armor of David. Now, what does it mean to put on God's armor? It means to be in God. God is clothed in his armor. If we're clothed in his armor, we're in God. Or as Paul says, Dozens of times in his letters, we are in Christ. And this reduces this whole spiritual warfare thing down to a real simple point. All you have to do is step into your relationship with Jesus and the armor automatically comes around you. I think that's an amazing thought. Uh, and so the commands here, they show us where the battleground is. It's all of our life and relationships and so on. They show us how to fight it. It's not be strong, it's be strengthened. It's the grace of God. And they show us that God has already gone for, before us in this battle. It's his armor. And all we have to do is step into our relationship with him and his armor will come around us. That's really an amplification of the idea of the grace of God coming upon us to uh, provide for us. Well, uh, 
King Jehoshaphat went out to battle, and it was an impossible a battle against impossible odds. How many of you have ever entered into one of those battles? I've had a few myself, and I'm sure every one of us had. Just a battle where we didn't see how we were going to come out the other end of it. And that's the predicament uh, that he was in. But God sent a prophet to him. And the prophet said, thus says the Lord to you, don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but God's. That's one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible in Second Chronicles uh, chapter 20. Remember, God has gone out on our behalf to battle already. The battle is not yours, but God's. That verse has brought me untold relief many times in my life because I knew that I couldn't win it myself. I was a dead duck. And so he says, he continues to Jehoshaphat, he says, you won't even need to fight in this battle. Why? Because God's gone out on your behalf. And he says, stand firm. Hold your position. All you have to do, and Paul says the same thing. He, he may be thinking of this scripture. Um, he says, just stand firm. Just, just stand and keep standing in these verses in Ephesians 6. That's all you have to do. Uh, you may be uh, like a boxer that was uh, bloodied in the ring, and at the end of 15 rounds, uh, the only thing that could be said was he wasn't knocked out. Well, sometimes that's good enough. Just stand. Hold your position. But then Jehoshaphat is told, see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. And Jehoshaphat then did something uh, wonderful. He appointed people to sing and praise the Lord and go before the army. Imagine that, uh, sending out the singers, the unarmed singers before the army. That was a place of faith for them, for sure. And when it says, when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush. That was their spiritual warfare. But you see, the army was in order. They got their their army. Jehoshaphat was a righteous king. His household was in biblical order. His nation was in biblical order. They didn't they didn't have resource to fight the battle, the enemy that was coming against them. But God came around them and went ahead of them. And in spite of their natural weakness from a military perspective, um, their life was in order. They had the Ephesians 4, 5, and first half of 6 in order. And it says, when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush, and the enemy were routed. So remember these three things when the going gets tough. Know where the real battle is and attend to it. Don't be diverted. Uh, Know that the battle is to be fought by the grace of God. Because there are lots of battles, even within your own family and relationships, that can be the very toughest places. The family can be the toughest place to fight these battles because of the potential of hurt that's involved. But know the battle is to be fought by the grace of God. Be strengthened. And finally, be assured that when you have cried out to God for your grace, for his government to be established, his kingdom to be established in the practical areas of your life, uh, know that he's already gone forth to fight the battle for you. And then you can fight God's fight and you can win. So friends, uh, I encourage you today, uh, 
I have fought a lot of battles and there will be some to come. Uh, I have never felt adequate. I have always felt weak. It is a terrible disservice when Christian leaders put up this persona of fake strength and pseudo faith, which is often a lie. Christian leaders need to model what Paul modeled, strength in weakness. He said, I got no strength. Everything is collapsing around me. The sentence of death is passed upon me. But one thing I know, if God is for us, who can be against us? And that's all he needed to carry him through. May I pray for you for a moment. Father, I thank you for my brothers and sisters at New Life Church. And I pray for them today. I pray for your encouragement to come upon them. I pray for your mighty strength. Even in this moment, Lord, as I pray, that you know the battles that are being fought in the lives of those who are listening. And some of those battles seem to be impossible. Some are just tough. Some are maybe manageable, but we've been coping in our own strength. Lord, we pray that we would find your strength instead. Uh, We would seek to be strengthened and that we would be alerted to the fact that you have grace for us in our marriages, with our kids, with our place of employment, with our studies, with fellow believers in the church, with our neighbors, with our finances, with our health, with all these things where the battles fought. Lord, you have strength for us and you will bring us through. And when it happens, Lord, uh, we want to be like Jehoshaphat uh, and his army, that they gave all praise to you and you alone, for it's you that have done it. And we give you thanks in advance, Father, for the things that you're going to do in the lives of people as they apply the principles of your word today that I've tried to explain as best I can and come back with testimony after testimony of this is what God did. And I commit them into your care with that confidence in my heart. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you all.